Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Capital Stack. This is your host, David Paul. I am here today with my boy, Max Farrell. Is it Farrell or for real? Uh, Farrell. Uh, Farrell? Like, like the uh, the wild animal. I, I wish yeah. it was like Pharrell. That'd be way cooler, but yeah. Is that like the rapper? Pharrell is the rapper. Um, feral is the, the animal. Like, you know, you're a feral hog or something. Yeah, feral cat, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> feral squirrel. Yeah, just like that. It's it's an Irish name, so maybe maybe that's where it all originated. I gotcha. All CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. is the CEO and founder of a vertical SaaS company called WorkHound, where he enables uh, shipping and trucking companies to engage or to engage and retain their employees, which traditionally have a lot of turnover. I've talked to Max, uh, you know, a little bit over the years and have really great things to say about him and uh, wanted to kind of peel apart his journey. He just raised a Series A of how much? Uh, we raised a $12 million Series A from Level Equity. Great firm, great firm. So, Max, how you doing, man? Life is nice right now. How are you, David? I'm doing good, man. I'm in Southern California. Oh. Yeah. You know, getting away from the Phoenix heat. Yeah, that, that sounds like a miserable place to be this time of year. No offense to Phoenix, but it's hot there. Yeah, 120, bro. Goodness. Mm-hmm. Max, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background and the genesis of WorkOut? Happy to. Uh, So my background is sociology. Uh, That's what I went to school for. I love solving people problems. And uh, I was really fortunate out of uh, college to get a job working at a a tech company that was backed by Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures and uh, to, to ride a rocket ship in Des Moines, Iowa. Not many, com- not many people get a chance to do that. So it was a lot of fun to be there for a couple of years. And while I was there, I was also involved in a uh, uh, nonprofit organization called Startup Weekend, which would help facilitate uh, startup events around the world to um, bring communities together to, to get people to simulate building a business in a weekend. Uh, and so initially, I helped launch the first ones in, in Arkansas, where I'm from, uh, then uh, started to facilitate different events around the country. And it was uh, really beneficial for me because I got a chance to learn the, uh, the, the startup playbook, the, the importance of customer discovery, uh, trying to find product market fit and making sure that you're truly uh, falling in love with solving a problem instead of chasing a shiny solution, which I think a lot of people in the early stages of their entrepreneurial journey, that's what they do. Um, and so in, 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 in sticking with that theme of falling in love with the problem, uh, I wound up quitting my job because I was really fascinated by the idea of how do you get people that hate their jobs in these big corporations to get excited about work again. Uh, and I uh, started a corporate innovation consulting firm and uh, ran it for a few months and made some money. But what I realized is that I was selling a vitamin and I really wanted to be solving a painkiller problem. And so a, uh, a mentor of mine told me, hey, you need to focus. You're saying everyone's your customer, which means you're not the master of any single one of them, but also go where there's pain. And he told me about the challenges in the trucking industry. And I got really fascinated by it because there's a 50,000 driver shortage 
There's a 95% annualized driver turnover rate. And the average age of a truck driver is like 45, 50 years or, or rising. And so it's this fascinating problem set for this backbone industry for the U.S. And so with, uh, so with WorkHound, which is, is the company that, that we're building, uh, we sought out to, to figure out how do you start to tackle turnover in an industry like trucking, knowing that if we can prove, our, uh, prove ourselves in this really uh, um, old school industry, that, uh, that then there's opportunities to tackle other markets as well. Um, so that's a little bit of background about how we, uh, how we got to, to starting WorkHound. Do you want me to share more about how WorkHound got off the ground, David? Uh, yeah. So did you start with the trucking vertical or were you more generalist at the company's inception and then focused down later down the road? No. So we, we started with trucking from, from day one. Again, uh, one of the big things that I wanted to do when we started this was to really specialize, whereas in that corporate innovation experience, I was trying to sell to everyone. Well, that means that your messaging resonates with no one. Uh, and, uh, and so we did start with, with trucking. And uh, a big thing for, for myself and my co-founder, Andrew Carpolani, is to operate with empathy. And, uh, and so when, as we started the company, uh, we did ride-alongs across the country. So I rode with a truck driver from Iowa to Los Angeles. So I've slept in the truck, ate in the truck, and showered at truck stops and got to see the beauty and the ugly of the road. I got to see the Rocky Mountains and the Arizona Canyons and the Nevada Desert, but I also got to see uh, the frustrations the drivers have, the poor communication, the treatment like they're second-class citizens, and the massive inefficiencies in communication. And what uh, we wound up seeing was that turnover is high in this industry. A lot of guys quit because they don't feel respected and they don't feel like they have a voice. And historically, the only options have been exit interviews or annual surveys, which is either too late or too slow. So with WorkHound, what we sought out to do was build a real-time feedback loop to help these companies be proactive instead of reactive in addressing the issues of their people, knowing that if you listen to your people and act on what they say and tell them what you did, good things will happen. You'll retain more people and you'll ultimately build a better business. And uh, that was the, uh, the linchpin that got us rolling. Were the truck drivers like weirded out that you wanted to sleep next to them in the truck? <laughs> I uh, so I was fortunate. I, <laughs> How did that conversation start? Yeah. Hey man, I want I want to be you. So the uh, so I got connected to uh, to a, a professional driver named Charles in in Des Moines where I was living, and uh, we went out for beers. And I was just like, Hey, can I learn? Uh, I just want to ask you about life being a, a driver. And we uh, we had great conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he extended an offer that you could tell he had extended to dozens of people. No one ever taken taken him up on it. He was like, "Hey, anytime you want to you want to ride with me, let me know." Um, and uh, and so I hit him up a week later. I was like, "Hey, when do you head out next?" And he said, "Sunday." And so I said, "Cool, I'll be there." And uh, got in the truck with him, and we rode. Um, but it certainly made it easier given that uh, he knew people in my network, and we'd had a beer together and realized. Neither of us are, are going to do anything weird. <laughs> good. You, they got, you got that out. We of got way. that out of the way. <laughs> okay, good. And so just to be clear, because I think this is like super important because, I mean, that is the deepest form of customer discovery that, you know, I think any founder and entrepreneur can do is actually sit in the customer's customer, you know, kind of uh, problem set. And 
like my question is was was the company started before you did that like knowing that you wanted to to do it like did you run this process of customer discovery while starting to do like the company building mvp process or was all this work being done prior to you incorporating and trying to raise money and hiring people etc uh was done at the very beginning so early on uh as soon as i I got fascinated by the trucking industry and you can talk to some of my friends and they were like, man, Max is going down a weird rabbit hole right now. But um, I remember talking with uh, executives at trucking companies. I think one of the the coolest moments, um, a mentor of mine connected me with the Arkansas Trucking Association. And I I sat with them saying, hey, I've got some ideas about how to tackle uh, driver turnover. And they were like, okay, well, that's interesting. We'll, we'll give you some opportunities to speak at our conferences because I'd been doing corporate innovation presentations. Um, but also they connect me with executives. And I remember talking with the COO of JB Hunt for an hour and a half about ideas about how to solve this, these problems. And you know, that's a really big aha moment, even if they're not necessarily buying the solution because we didn't know what we were going to offer yet. The fact that a, a leader of, of that level is willing to spend 90 minutes plus Talking about ideas means this is a big enough problem that they're they're willing to try anything. They'll talk to twenty something year old kid that's got ideas about how to tackle the trucking industry, even though they hadn't been a part of it. Um, so that that sort of thing was really impactful. Uh, and so I reached out to a ton of people to learn. Um, and then as we started to put the, the the core of the company together to say, all right, let's Andrew quit your job and let's join. Let's uh, let's go do this. That's when I was doing the ride along. Uh, so it was all kind of happening in tandem. We knew that we wanted to go build something, but we wanted to learn every step of the way. Why is it, do you think, that early stage founders don't do this type of work regularly before starting companies? Um, people think that there's shortcuts and there, there's no shortcut. I mean, what, what I find time and time again is that there, there's a formula. It's pain plus passion plus persistence equals payoff. Uh, none of this is is easy. And so, again, like even when we technically incorporated the company, we would still go um, to truck stops and, and interview truck drivers um, to, to better understand what, what they were going through. And and some of it is to, to deeply understand the problem, but some of it also is, is really helpful for, for sales conversations. Because if, if you don't deeply understand the problem of the the company that you're trying to go sell to, especially if it's B2B, they're never going to take you seriously. Uh, and so, you know, to be able to say like, hey, this is what I hear from truck drivers and and to realize you know, how to speak folksy to them, that, that was really important for us to even have a shot at getting our first customer. And in an industry like trucking, getting your first five, 10 customers, man, that's brutally hard. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, you probably haven't seen it from your lens because you're an operator. But from an investor perspective, you know, I see a lot of companies being built more on anecdotal kind of information more than actually doing the work that you said you were doing, talking to customers, you know, really pulling out hard, hard facts, um, and then getting the empathy, right, piece to it. Um, You know, I I was talking to a friend of mine who literally just quit a job at a at a healthcare IT company because the CEO didn't love his customers, right? He, you know, knew there was a pain point. He knew how he could like cobble together a solution to try to fix it, but the problem was is like his north star metric was how many bookings can I get? How much MRR can I get? 
And then once he would sell them, the customers would just kind of be left in the wayside, right? So like he really wasn't addressing the problem as much as like, you know, he was selling um, up front. Yeah, the, I mean, certainly, you know, th- at the stage that we're at, MRR is, is really important. Um, but the, the thing that we can't lose sight of is that any dollar that comes in is a, there's an opportunity for a story or a case study to, to get the next customer. And yeah, even to this day, I, I still, if, if I'm joining a sales call with our team, yeah, I tell people, look, like, yes, we're, we're selling a product, but we're, we want to partner just because we want a story at the end of this. Like the revenue is nice. The story is more important to us because we want your success story to go help us get the next five companies on board. That's what's impactful to us at this stage. Awesome. God, there's so many good quotes here. I don't even know which one to pick. Max, you're dropping bombs on this podcast, bro. <laughs> this is some really good stuff. So you start the company, you incorporate dot, dot, dot. What, what, what happens next? Tell me a little bit about the company building. Once you feel like you start you know, signing your first five companies, like how did you know you had product market fit, et cetera? Yeah, well, I mean, first off, it was a very weird way to start a company because um, we had uh, applied for an accelerator in Omaha, Nebraska. It's no longer around, but um, I, I remember um, putting together this business plan. It was like one or two pages for this application. And they said, you know, who are the founders? And I was like, well, they're not going to take me seriously if I'm a non-technical co-founder. And so I remember uh, going to, to Andrew over beers and we knew each other through the tech community. And I was like, hey, can I just put your name down as, as my founder on this? Because <laughs> like, they're not going to take my application seriously otherwise. And he's like, yeah, sure. And he didn't think much of it. And the next day they called me and they're like, hey, if y'all want to do this, we'll give you 20K to move to Omaha for a few months and, and start this. And... Um, so I told him, and, and I'm very fortunate, like my first sales pitch was convincing Andrew to quit his job. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, and, uh, you know, he quit his job. I stopped doing the consulting stuff. We moved to Omaha for three months and lived in a, a janky house and uh, over there to just get the company off the ground. And a lot of it was building the first version of the product, learning, and then also learning how to sell. Like the uh, I think one of the biggest missteps that... Um, early stage companies doing even early stage accelerators is they focus a lot on how to have investor conversations um, instead of focusing on how to sell. And I wish that accelerator would have just been 100% focused on here's how you go get your first five customers to hell with investors. Because the reality is that if we had five customers, the investors would would line up because we'd, we'd de-risked. And instead of here's how you go pitch uh, investors. Uh, that's one of the most maddening things about the, the early stages of, of companies right now. Um, so the uh, a lot of it was trial and error of reaching out to companies, trying to figure out what does it take to get somebody to even try our product for free. I mean, we had three first customers like people, because people were skeptical of, of being the first to try something. Um, and you were completely honest about that. You're saying, hey, this is a new company. You're customer number one, et cetera. Yeah, I was like, hey, sign this LOI, be a, be a beta partner with us. Here's what you get. Here's the resources that we're going to provide. It's going to be, and I think the, a big pitch is that this is like a, cons- a free consulting service because uh, that's something that people can wrap their head around. Um, probably one of, the, one of the big catalysts for us in the first four months of the company was uh, – Winning this this uh, Shark Tank like business competition in Dallas, Texas, 
that was called Truck Tank. So it was a. Uh, <laughs> we, so if, if anybody was curious, Workhound is the the one and only winner in the world of Truck Tank because they only did it that that one year. Um, but yeah, there's For one hit number. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so there's uh, yeah we we won this competition. It was uh, about who's the best entrepreneur in trucking, and um, we beat out some some other interesting businesses, but. Um, the press from that helped us get our first customer, and then our first customer helped us get our second customer. We moved back to Des Moines to to stay heads down and keep going, and um, just chipping away, trying to develop the product based on feedback, running the product, um, and just trying to add customers. It was uh, just a grind. So you begged and pleaded, right, for them to put your service to basically essentially spend time with you to beta this. I mean, that's really what they were giving up was time because they weren't paying for anything. And then what was the switch when you actually switched on to, okay, are you getting value from this? How are you going to pay for it? What should we charge? How did you kind of cross that chasm? Yeah, the so we never had somebody successfully jump from free to paid. And, and at this point, I'm very jaded about um, giving away anything for free because if people don't have skin in the game, they're not going to take it seriously. Um, so that, and I actually think that that's one of the biggest, uh, measures of, of a product's value is if somebody is willing to pay to have their problem solved, even if it's in a really janky way, uh, because the early versions of our product were ugly. I mean, there was a bunch of weird stuff that we had to do to make it work. We made it work. Um, and uh, but the, the ultimate measure is is somebody willing to pay for that service because this helps them solve the problem, and uh, and so the the first paying customer we got wasn't even a on on an unpaid beta. They reached out and uh, we had to figure out what our price would actually be for them. We agreed on a price and got rolling that way, and then that helped influence our next customer and so on. So there's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, so basically you just picked a, you know, looked at the wind, you picked out a price. Did you look at other kind of what software people were spying and kind of like judge it on that? So the, I mean, the, the like with pricing, there's either value-based pricing or cost-based pricing. And if you're, if you're in software, you definitely want to stick with value-based pricing. And uh, so what we, uh, what we looked at was, okay, um, it costs $5,000 to replace a truck driver. Uh, we think we can help a company retain, you know, one driver a month at minimum we're going to charge a fraction of that so here's what we're going to charge and uh and and then ultimately figure out are people willing to pay that because what's more important for us early on is just get a yes and get some money and then optimize for price and value as you're able to better show show that story so if you were to d- design your own accelerator program and you were to make, you know, curriculum of, you know, subjects one, two, three, and four for new startup founder on how to sell your first five customers, what would those classes be? Um, goodness. Um, yeah, I'd say one is customer discovery, like deeply understand your, your customer. Because again, if, if you're on this journey of entrepreneurship, you have to fall in love with solving the problem, not with a shiny solution. And again, a bunch of people out there think, oh, I have this great idea, but if nobody's willing to pay to have that problem solved, then get out. Um, so that's one of the first things. The, the second one, um, I just say like, cold calling 101 like i had to learn how to <laughs> right. i had to learn how to cold call and and that is a that is a art in itself and of course there's a science behind it as far as 
it's all a big funnel. You got to make X number of dials to get Y number of connects, to get Z number of conversations, to get you know, a certain number of appointments. Um, and so like then understanding the, the funnel math, probably building your, your brand, figuring out how do you start to tell the story through content or through press? Because I think industry specific press is a really great uh, low cost way for companies to get their name out there. Um, and then sales process. How do you, because I, I think one of the biggest um, missteps that we made was that somebody would be willing to set a demo with us. And my assumption was, oh, man, they're going to buy. Um, and there's a huge difference between um, somebody doing a demo of a, of a product and kicking the tires versus actually interest in in uh, committing. So, like, I think, like, if you look at most sales pipelines, if somebody's at the demo stage, it's probably like a 10% likelihood that that person's going to become a customer. So here I was thinking, man, they're doing a demo. They're at the 90% mark. But at this point, I know the data shows like really they're super far away from being a customer. And it's just one of those things that um, you're either going to experience or somebody needs to tell you like, hey, just because somebody wants to talk to you about your product means you're still way far away from getting them to yes. And uh, and understanding how do you price? How do you um, how do you put together a proposal? What are, what are the steps you need to have in your sales process so you look polished going into companies? Those are probably the classes I would do. So that's really interesting. You said that. So that ten percent is that like recent B two B SaaS sales data? That ten percent are conversions from um, from the demo stage. Um, I mean, it's around average, just based on what I've seen out there. I, don't, I can't quote a specific article, but um, yeah, if you tell if you talk to SaaS sales leaders, I'm sure they'd say it was around there. If it's, I wouldn't surprise me if it's lower. If it was much higher, I'd say they probably need to be demoing more people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's not a good sample size, right? Um, cool. All right, so that's incredibly helpful feedback to anybody that's listening from a founder perspective. So tell me um, a little bit about kind of the raising the capital piece and talking to investors and, you know, how'd you navigate that? And um, when you actually had a couple million bucks in the bank, what was that like? Um, so the, the first time we, we tried to raise money, we sucked really bad. Um, and there, cause there's a lot of guidance out there from folks like Brad Feld about how to go raise money if you're a startup, but that's advice for people that are in ecosystems that have investors that know how to play the game. We were trying to raise money in Des Moines, Iowa, where you have a bunch of angel investors that just aren't experienced in in making bets in, in high risk software companies that are super early stage like ours. Uh, and so we spun our wheels in a big way, wasting a ton of time because um, really we needed to give people something to buy from a uh, investment standpoint. And, uh, and we didn't because you know, the, the advice that Brad Feld gives is, you know, have, uh, have the investor help set the terms. Well, an angel investor in Des Moines, Iowa didn't know how to set the terms for, for a deal. Um, and so the, where, where we actually found traction was when we connected with a San Francisco based firm called Right Side Capital. Um, and they're essentially Moneyball investors. Their whole thing is we'll make quick decisions. We'll give you a yes or no within two weeks. We'll do diligence and then you get back to running your business. And that was so refreshing, especially after experiencing just the time suck of people wasting your time on, on conversations that weren't going to lead anywhere. Uh, so I became uh, an immediate fan of of that philosophy of of raising capital, where 
I'm as as an entrepreneur, I'm willing to take a little bit of a, a hit on valuation if that means you're going to make our fundraise process two months versus six months, because like, that can be a huge time suck to to you and or even kill the business. Um, so our first round was 500k in 2016. Um, and then we you know, chipped away and kept growing. And then we did a, a seed round in 2019. We raised 1.5 million. Um, and then over the past few years, we just ran off of revenue plus the funding plus some debt occasionally. And then did our uh, Series A in uh, um, what, three, four months ago. Nice, nice. And so tell me a little bit about just investor qualification and how you look at that and how do you kind of run through that? that that process as you got smarter yeah so there's the way i see it at this point there there's historically been two different ways to build a, a software company there's either bootstrapping or the vc gravy train where you're essentially raising money to go raise your next round and you either get you get to valuation inflation and dilution hell and all that um, i think for you and i we've both steered away from that sort of thing and so we've picked the dirt road that's in the middle where there are investors out there that will um, put some money into the business, but also give you optionality where if you want to run to cash flow positive, you can. If you want to go raise more money, you can, but you have that ability to control your own destiny. Does it mean you're going to grow a little slower than some of those folks in the VC gravy train? Yeah, but you keep way more options on the table. So we've we've picked that path. Um, and so anytime that we've looked at, at investors, I think there's a couple things. Like one, are, are they going to be um, you know, value aligned as far as how, how we're going to run the business? Like the, the investors that work best with us are ones that serve as bumpers. Like if you think about bowling, we want to partner with people that, uh, you know, they let us go down the alley and, uh, and they make sure that we don't go in the gutter. Uh, so, you know, if we start to veer off, then uh, they'll say, hey, I wouldn't do that. But other than that, they let us go do our thing, which we really appreciate. Um, the other thing is investors that make quick decisions is really important for us. Um, and then the, uh, the third thing that I, I think is important for entrepreneurs to at least consider is what percentage of your deal is a, uh, is, is the, is your, is a part of their portfolio. So for example, if your deal is worth 50% of an investor's portfolio, there's a ton of pressure on your business. And, uh, and so you don't want that from any of your investors where like you were the, the boomer bust for them. Uh, I think one of the things that's been really valuable for us is that probably with every, any investor that's backed us, their investment in work count is less than 5% of their portfolio or net worth if they're an angel. And so then it's, um, you know, if, if it works out great, they get an awesome return. If it doesn't work out great, then they're, you know, they knew that there was a risky bet and they keep rolling. And I think that helps. You're not going to be up your ass. Right. And I think that helps lower the, the, the pressure level for uh, a founder. And it's one of those weird things that doesn't get talked about, people don't think about. But that is one of the questions that I think founders or anybody raising capital should be asking because uh, then it, it helps take the pressure off so you can focus on building the business, especially when stuff's not going great. So you still have your co founder and things are going swimmingly? Ben. The uh, what is it that uh, there's never a hundred percent day in business, but uh, man, I love a good eighty percent day. Um, so yeah, all in all, we're we're really proud of our progress. We're always hungry for more. Um, certainly, we're in a, um, a a growth phase where we're hiring a lot. And, and a mentor of mine told me that every time something doubles, it breaks. 
so you know we we have to regularly change process or um, what's what are the different things to, to take on to get better but uh, I'm really proud of our team how we're chipping away day in and day out so in the trucking business did you ever get fundamental kind of misalignment when it came to kind of pricing the company from a TAM perspective of just being in trucking, specifically enterprise trucking and like the expansion? And how did you think about that kind of risk? So the, I'd say one of the, you know, it's funny the the different objections people share about why they don't invest in your business, why they don't invest in your business, why they say it's worth what it is. And, and I remember in like 2016 to 2019, a bunch of investors would pass because of autonomous technology. Um, just saying that, oh, robots are going to replace truck drivers in the next few years. Why? Why are you trying to help people? And when when there's not going to be any people, and, and what? I'm I'm waiting for the kiosk to work at the airport. Right. Once that starts to happen, then I think I'll start you know trusting some other technology. Well, and, and so you know what what we did, tried to communicate, and some some folks really rallied around it is that autopilot didn't replace pilots and the the role of a professional driver isn't going to go away it's going to evolve but they're going to become more like truck conductors than there's not going to be anybody in in the in the truck and so um you know for us we actually see a really big opportunity to to be a part of the human side of automation that is happening um and uh so yeah that that was probably a big objection that, that that we got Mm-hmm. And then so now, you know, you're building more products to sell in the existing customer base. Are you going into other markets? Definitely. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's something that we're starting to get interest in. Um, the the cool thing is when our customers come to us and say, hey, we have office staff or we have technicians. Can, can you help us with that or warehouse workers? Um, and, and that's exactly what we were hoping, uh, hoping for and, and planning for is where if we do a good job, naturally, the product's going to be attractive to, to adjacent markets. So the, uh, the other parts of the supply chain need a lot of help right now. Um, yeah, I know that there's uh, been questions around layoffs in the tech sector, but there's a labor crunch in, uh, in the supply chain. And so we definitely know that we're, we're bringing a lot of value to the companies there. Yeah, we're kind of in a weird time where, you know, there's a job deficit, yet there's a lot of, but unemployment's rising. Like, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't really add up. And, you know, I think that, um, I think that people have more options today, but you still need to have retention strategies because the jobs that don't have really good, you, you can't be a shitty boss anymore. Like, it's just not acceptable. And you have to have some kind of professional development or some type of carrying arm or else you're going to be continually, you know, passing people over. And, you know, gas is expensive now. It's seven, eight dollars an hour. So people have to work somewhere, but you want them to work for you as opposed to working for customer, you know, support at Amazon. Yeah. I mean, and that's a big moment for us right now as a a company. It's that um, companies have to give a damn about their people. And, uh, and a lot of them don't know where to start. And so WorkCount becomes a really good baseline for them. So that, that's been a, a really fun thing for us is watching companies that historically, you know, been like this, of like, this is the job, take it or leave it, to start to lean a little bit more and have a culture of curiosity around how do we start to listen to our people and, and address their issues uh, so we can be that company. Have you looked into the healthcare sector at all? I, I, I would love to work with the healthcare sector. Um, and so if healthcare sector, you know, hospitals, home health, nursing homes, if you're listening, we, we certainly can help you with your, uh, your staffing challenges. 
Here's here's the the, the tough thing about our, our business. It's that um, even though we've done a tremendous job in, in helping a uh, an industry like trucking, a, a home health organization will say, well, you know, that's trucking. We're totally different. But if you describe the job of a truck driver and describe the job of a home health caregiver, they're very similar in, in structure and challenge and frustration. And um, but it, it's it's one of those things where I, I would we could work with them today. Our product works for for any industry. Um, it's just simply a matter of uh, focus and, and the supply chain. Certainly, one where we know that there's more alignment because there's familiarity with the success we've had in trucking. Mm-hmm. And then how like how do you think about just selling in? I mean, truckers were technology laggards. Would you say that's accurate? Historically, yes. Uh, when we started the company, it was very fair to say the trucking's ten years behind the times technologically. But the uh, the the reality is now is that with pan- the pandemic, especially that accelerated technology investment and decision making in, in a very rapid way. Um, so there were some companies like, oh, you know, we got to think on it for three years. But now it's like, oh, we, we can make decisions in two weeks. And so that muscle memory is there a little bit more in ways that it hadn't been. Um, I, I'd say, yeah, so I would say trucking is becoming more and more uh, invested in, in technology. I think the, the big question is for them, like any industries, that we have this technology, we have this data, how do we best use it and do something with it versus because having it versus doing something with it are two very different things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, what's, what's, what's work hound look like in the next couple of years? So, you know, one of the things we have to figure out for ourselves is understanding what, what are we really good at? What's our unique thing in, in the market? Cause there's a ton of employee engagement initiatives out there. Uh, and, and so what, what we know is that getting feedback is, is really easy. There's SurveyMonkey, there's Google Forms, heck, there's suggestion boxes where you can write something on a piece of paper and drop it off at, at a location. That's easy. What's really hard is understanding the, the feedback that you're given and doing something about it. And so where WorkHound is, is really good is, is helping companies get honest feedback they can understand and act on. And as, as we go forward, that's the big area that we're focusing on continuing to help companies really understand that that data that they're getting and use the the people data as operational intelligence. Like what uh, instead of figuring out okay how do we address this this guy's issue so he stays with the company, now companies are saying how do we look at the the trends in our feedback and, and make strategic business decisions so that we can become a better company and how do we take more action on on the feedback that we are getting. So those are the areas where we're investing a lot of our resources to, to better help our customers and, and the, uh, the partners that are coming on board. And so it's been a lot of fun to watch companies go from, you know, we're not ready for this to, hey, give, give us more because we want to try to do more. So when you're giving this data to um, like mission control, right, the management from the field, are they surprised by it? Um, some, uh, a lot of it is confirmation, uh, but there, there definitely needs to, there definitely are some surprises, uh, because the, the way that we've approached, uh, gathering feedback at, at WorkHound is, is always embracing open-ended feedback because as a company, if your turnover rate is 95% year over year, you clearly have some blind spots and often you don't know what you don't know. Uh, and so your traditional survey is management saying, Hey, we think we know what the issues are. We're going to ask a specific question. 
But our goal at WorkCount is to help you surface the blind spots that you have. Um, and, and so we're really good at doing that. And, and oftentimes the way that companies will describe this is that WorkCount helps us identify micro issues that lead to a macro change. And that's a lot of fun when that happens. Yeah. And then so how have you seen behavior change kind of like within the organization, you know, uh, from the management perspective, kind of opening up this feedback loop? Yeah. So the yeah, there, there's a couple different layers. So the first layer is how do we use a tool like this to uh, be proactive in catching issues before somebody leaves the company? And, uh, and so we have a process where like if a worker has an issue, so they may say, you said you'd put my wife on my insurance. You didn't. I'm tired of the runaround. I'm going to quit. Well, a company sees that. They're like, gosh, we can fix this. And so with WorkCount, we've built all of our feedback to be anonymous unless a worker reveals their identity because there is that fear of retaliation out there. And so a, a company can request to connect to this anonymous worker to address their issue. And uh, and it's happened at companies where it turns out the guy uh, had his wife on his insurance. There was just confusion about paperwork. And he winds up staying with the company and the company uh, counts that as a win because they get to keep one of their better people. So what we, we measure is how many workers are staying with the company at least 30 days after that issue is addressed. And so last year, we helped companies retain about 9,000 workers across North America. So that was really rewarding. Um, but beyond that, now companies are starting to say in their, in their weekly leadership meetings, hey, what's, what's our, our feedback from our people say before we go make this decision? So, hey, we're going to ramp up our benefits. What are people saying here? We're, we're about to make a, ch- a change to our pay package. What's confusing to our people that we can, uh, that we can improve here? Um, so that's, that's been really cool to, to watch companies integrate. All right, every week we're, we're making strategic decisions at the leadership level, but we're factoring in this pool of employee feedback that we'd never looked at before. That's awesome. I'm so happy that uh, you got that round raised and it seems like you're just kicking ass, man. It's so great to see you doing so well. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it progress is a process, but I'm uh, really grateful for our team. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, blogging is something that you do or have, you know, done in the past to kind of tell your story of WorkHound. And, you know, I've seen you, you know, actually do some, um, yeah, freestyle rapping. When, how did that, uh, how'd that come into your life? Um, so hip hop is the most entrepreneurial genre that there is like there's, uh, um, yeah, since, since day one of hip hop's foundation that in, in the, in the Bronx, like everything about it's been entrepreneurial and even now it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and so there's, there's a ton to learn from it. And so in high school, um, I was, uh, involved in the, in the hip hop community back in Little Rock. So I'd, uh, I'd put together shows. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd record CDs and sell them in high school. Uh, I'd reach out to press and, and schedule. So that was like my first big entrepreneurial experience was me being the product and figuring out how do I get people to show up to these shows? How do I get the product ready to distribute, work with the producers to get the, the music mixed? Uh, and so, you know, it was awesome to be in high school and get that experience, make some money and, you know, have hundreds of people come out and to, to support you. Um, that's a hell of a way to start your entrepreneurial journey. That's awesome, dude. That's so cool. So why don't you bust out a rhyme for me right now? I'll, make it, I'll, make, I'll send you some links. Something, no, just send, send me something like put capital stack in there, like clickety-clack, capital there stack. There you go. See, so you did it. Well, I can't top that, yeah. man. 
You're a natural. <laughs> Come on, man. I, I gotta, you got to give me something here. I mean, this is like incredible that I have this opportunity. I, 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 will, I will send you some, uh, some of the music videos and, and stuff on Spotify. You can link to folks, too. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll put it in the show notes. Awesome. A uh, couple canned questions. Max, what's your favorite book? Favorite book? Oh my goodness! Um, I'm gonna go uh, fiction. Um, the the book that I or series I really liked lately was the Three Body Problem series. It's a sci-fi uh, series um, written by uh, I can't remember the author's name, but um, man, I, I ripped through that, and it was like three books that were like three four hundred pages each. Just captivating about sci-fi. It was a sci-fi book based about space. I'd, aliens, aliens, and and what happens if if Earth has a four hundred year heads up that an alien invasion is coming? How do we respond? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, um, that's cool. So that that one I'd say was a really good read. I still like. I think some of the best books out there make you think, and I, 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 it's probably like the cliche thing would be for me to say like, here's this business book that changed my life. But man, after a day of grinding, the last thing I want to do is read a book that talks about how inadequate I am. So I'd prefer, I'd prefer to go to another planet when I, when I read before I go to bed. Totally, totally. And then uh, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever ever heard? Oh, man, that business advice. Um, um, I think that the, at its core, it's like as you build a company, take care of your people. Um, that, that's certainly a big one. Um, another one is that sales solves everything. That, that's tended to be true time and time again. Um, so those, those are a few of the, the thoughts to stand out there. Awesome. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to the Capital Stack. We're listed on all your favorite platforms, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. If uh, you like what you listen to, please subscribe, share with a friend, and we'll drop an episode every Tuesday. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.